The reading for today is Proverbs chapter 19, verses 5 through 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursues them with words, but does not have them. Whoever gets sense loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will discover good. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lives will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Laura. So we are going to be camped in Proverbs 19 today, not just the passage that Laura read, but we're going to do some other verses as well. But as always, during this uh, series on the Proverbs, which next week will be the last week of Proverbs before we start uh, Advent. As always, we're going to start by reading a psalm and just letting the psalm wash over everybody and let the Holy Spirit go to work and apply it to our, our hearts and our, our lives. And today we're going to read Psalm 6, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is also greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray. Lord God, as we now open up Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs 19, it's our prayer that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have to say, that we would be challenged and that we would be challenged joyfully and that we would be discipled and directed joyfully. And God, that, that we would hear from you and that your spirit would apply your word to our hearts, to our minds, and to our lives. And that the, to the extent that the messenger this morning, me, is a distraction, that you would just remove that distraction and allow your word to wash over us and to fill us. We ask that in Jesus' name, as by your Holy Spirit we come to you. Amen. So uh, Luke at Gateway, who was in charge of the preaching collective, titled this message, Love for the Poor in a World of Plenty. Love for the poor in a world of plenty. We live in a world of plenty. We may not feel like it all the time, but we do. And I would suggest to you that this is a very difficult topic. I know two weeks ago, some of you were like, lust was really hard to listen to, too. But this is also a very difficult uh, topic, and I think that's due to our nature, just to our nature as human beings. Most of us, again, this is like the self-serving bias. Research has shown that we tend to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt 
most of the time while looking at others and not so much giving them the benefit of the doubt, the self-serving bias. Most of us really see ourselves as generous and sacrificial and other-oriented, and we believe it, but, but the data really just belies that notion in most cases. Um, I think the next five to seven minutes are going to be a bit uncomfortable for some of us. It's uncomfortable even for me. And then after that five to seven minutes, it's, it's going to continue to be uncomfortable. <laughs> um, but after that first seven minutes or so, there's going to be times when some of us are going to feel like we want to take sides. And I would just counsel you not to. Just listen and, and think about this. And like I said, to the extent that I get in the way of this message... Man, I just pray that the Spirit would, would take that away today. Um, the interesting thing about human nature, and I've been reading this stuff now literally for decades and watching this. Uh, every study from virtually every think tank, every university, every research group on this topic, virtually every person believes that they are underpaid in their job. Whatever it is that they're doing. Virtually, not every, virtually, the vast majority believes that whatever they're doing for a living, they're underpaid in their job. It doesn't matter. They could be making six figures in a lucrative industry, but for their industry, I'm really underpaid. We have this view of ourselves. Uh, most people, virtually everybody, believes that if they do get a raise, their raise is below average and certainly not reflective of their dedication, competence, and commitment to their job. We're giving you an 8% raise this year. Well, I'm a 12%er. I think that I need a little bit more. Uh, by the way, I, this is like really low-hanging fruit right now. Okay, If you question this about people who make a lot more money, uh, let's take, for example, I think it recently in the news, there's a commissioner of a fairly major professional sports league who currently makes $34 million a year. Not enough. You understand, he's renegotiating his contract. He says he needs $50 million a year. He's underpaid at $34 million a year. Anybody here want to do that job for 30 You could save him $4 million. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it is fascinating to me. In Redemption Church, I've never seen so many hands raised. We praise Jesus on Sunday morning. Not as many hands went up as, I, as when I say, how about 30 million? You want to do that job? Okay. Isn't it fascinating? 34 million is not enough. Oh, and throw in a jet for a lifetime as well. Here you go. This one's really hard. It, and, and, and we have to explain it a little bit. Publicly, people will say one thing. But when a researcher comes to people and says, look, you're going to be anonymous. You're never going to be revealed. In fact, I'm not even going to talk to you. You're going to fill out this thing. I'm, nobody's ever going to know what you say. When people can be truly honest like that, they are. They're truly honest. They don't say what they would say publicly. Here you go. Salary is the primary metric you and I use to measure job satisfaction. No matter what you say publicly, really, salary is important to us. Salary is that important to us. Uh, my opinion 
one of the greatest sermons ever delivered was in 1956 at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama by Martin Luther King Jr. And in the midst of that sermon, he said this, I am afraid that many among you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. You are prone to judge the success of your profession by the index of your salary and the size of the wheelbase of your automobile rather than the quality of your service to humanity. And I want you to understand two things about that quote from that sermon. First of all, he said that in the context of saying, it's okay to earn money and go for it. He was not chastising people for wanting to earn money. He's saying, it's okay to do that, but don't place too much, you're placing too much importance on it. And second of all, understand where he was preaching this sermon. He was preaching to an economically depressed community. And he said, even you have this issue. So if they have that issue, we certainly have this issue as well. And if we find our job satisfaction in just our salary, understand what a greased pig that is. Because the minute you squeeze that salary as your satisfaction and fulfillment, what happens? It just squirts out. It's elusive. It is elusive. Again, go for it. Negotiate. Go to your boss. I'm worth more money. All of that is fine. But understand, if you find your value and your identity in it, you're never going to be fulfilled. We're continuing with the research. I love this one. This one has been going on literally for decades. They go to people who are making forty dollars to $50,000 a year, and they say, what would it take to make you content and satisfied and happy? They all say the same thing. About sixty. I could be happy and content on sixty. What's the irony of this? They go to the people who are making sixty. What do they say? I need seventy-five. Then they go to the people making seventy-five. What do they say? I was happier when I was making 60. No, they say this, I need $100,000. And you would think that eventually you'd get to a point where somebody would say, no, I'm good. But they don't. You're making $250,000. What would make you happy? I, I, I really, man, things could just be, I could get some breathing room if I made 300. It's fascinating how this happens. Harvard economists continue to release data showing that the average amount uh, a, a U.S. person's spend per dollar taken home, the average amount we spend per dollar taken home is a dollar two. Now, that's not sustainable. Now, there is some good news here. I, like I said, I've been following this for literally decades. The good news is that this is down from a dollar eight per dollar taken home in the, in the mid-1990s. So we've gotten better in that regard, but still... Most of us really believe that if, that, that if we just spend, we'll be, we'll be happy. And here's, again, more irony about this. Uh, one of the things that the research in this area reveals is that if you're making $50,000 a year, on average, you are much more likely to spend a dollar for every dollar you make. But if you're making between ninety dollars and $125,000 a year, you're likely to spend about a dollar four for every dollar you make. Isn't that interesting? So the more you make, the more debt you're willing to take on, the more you're willing to spend. Speaking of debt, the average household credit card debt today that is carried from month to month, this is excluding student loans, car loans, HELOCs, revolving lines of credit, only credit card debt, the stuff you carry around in your 
wallet or purse. Average credit card debt per household right now is $8,200. Here's the good news. It's down about a little over 20% from 2008 when it was a little over $11,000, and it's down from the mid-90s when it was a little over $14,000. That's a lot of money, though. Nevertheless, even though we have access to, uh, to these kinds of, of figures and facts, you and I continue to spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need in order to impress people we don't even like. That's one person's definition of credit card debt. Here's a little bit more academic definition of credit card debt. Purchasing goods or services, I'm sorry, purchasing goods, services, or experiences in which funds were not available but debt was. Fully 99% of consumer debt purchases are made on items that do not appreciate, often making these purchases in general unwise. Not always, but often. But here's the other side of that story. I think this is perfectly understand. I understand this. I get this. It makes sense to me. It just does. It makes sense. Why? Because the alternative is really scary. Poverty is scary. It, we can be really cash poor, but if we have some stuff, we tend to feel a little better about it. So we're willing to sacrifice liquidity for feeling a little bit better. Because not having poverty, it's, it's scary. It's, it's not what anyone desires, and it's really hard. Proverbs and the rest of Scripture, but especially Proverbs, has a lot to say about some of the challenges for somebody who's, who's mired in poverty. Here are just a few, for instance. When one is poor, one must constantly beg for mercy in some form or fashion. When you're poor, when you are in the midst of economic unsustainability, you're constantly begging for mercy in some form or fashion, an extension, a little extra here, some grace there. When one is poor, one is on a first-name basis with desperation. You live a life of constant desperation. When one is poor, family members tend to distance themselves. It shouldn't be like that. In many families, it isn't, but for the most part, that's what happens. The poor person has fewer friends and less community to rely on. Again, probably not the way it should happen. For the poor, justice sides much more often on the side of those who are resourced than on the side of those who don't have resources. When one is poor, there is often bitterness about the past and cynicism about the future. This is especially uh, difficult on the human condition because we know, again, from uh, psychological studies that hope, hope is actually essential to the human condition. It's difficult for us to survive if we don't have Hope, and there's not a lot of hope in poverty. And finally, those who are poor are usually more paranoid than the average person. It's very difficult, and the Bible is honest about poverty. So that's the backdrop for our message this morning. Um, quick question, does anybody need a glass of wine before we go on? Because we have people who could help you out with that. A little early communion wine. Here's the big idea. The way of Jesus calls us to change our perspective from one of consumer to one of servant. And so now we're just going to start going through some of these verses in Proverbs 19. Some Laura read, 
Others, she didn't. For instance, verse 1, she didn't read. Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. You're better off to be poor than to have a lot of money and, and, and be mired in wickedness. But here's the problem, and I know there's people in this congregation, people in this room right now, who are struggling desperately with finances, and, and many through no fault of their own. If you're struggling with money, this verse doesn't bring a whole lot of comfort, and it doesn't feel like it, does it? Right? So how do we reconcile this? Well, this goes to the fact that there is a temporal and there's an eternal, and there is a difference. And I know it's hard when we're in the temporal because that's where we are now, but there is a difference between the temporal and the eternal. What we have now is temporal, and what God has for us is eternal and better. And I, know, I recognize that this is not always soothing in the now to somebody who's, who's really struggling. I get that. But this is where our hope truly lies. I don't know if you ever think about what it was like during World War II if you were somebody who was in a Nazi concentration camp. Talk about the challenge of envisioning a better future for yourself, being stuck in a Nazi concentration camp. I don't see how there's any hope in the midst of that. Uh, it's interesting, though. Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist and was in one of those concentration camps for a number of years and is one of the 10% who survived his experience in the concentration camps, and I'm grateful that he did because when he got out, as a psychiatrist, he wrote a book, a famous book, classic book, called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And he wrote about one of the most significant things that he discovered in the concentration camp as a psychiatrist. He said that hope was essential to life, that those, those who survived the concentration camp experience, they were the ones who were holding on to hope and for some reason were able to not be executed by the Nazis. But essential to them being available even after the war was over, was that they had hope. If, you, if a person, he, he observed this countless times, if a person lost hope, they died before they could even be executed. And I'll never forget this illustration in the book. It's powerful. He said the most valuable commodity in the concentration camps would be when a, when a soldier uh, guarding the camp or security for the camp would smoke a cigarette all the way down as far as he could, and then he'd put it out. The, 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 the prisoners would all scramble to get that little butt because if you fired it up just right, you could maybe get one more drag off that cigarette. It was the most valuable thing in the concentration camps. And, and they would hoard these little butts, and if you had five or six of these little butts, you were a rich person in these concentration camps, the most valuable commodity. And you were very scrupulous about when you would fire one of those up and just take one drag of tobacco and then, and then it would be gone. That would be it. And you'd have that just that momentary satisfaction and then it would be gone. But you had something, something that allowed you to escape what was going on there. He said it was fascinating because he always knew when somebody was not going to wake up the next morning because that person would take his, his little stash of cigarette butts and he would sit on the edge of wherever he was sleeping 
and he would smoke every one of them before he went to bed. It was an indication that he had given up. And the next morning, sure enough, he wouldn't wake up. He died because he had lost hope. And this happened over and over and over and over. Can you imagine what it would be like to live without hope? As challenging as it is, all of us need to hold on to what our hope is, and that is the promises of God. That's why we talk so much at Redemption Church about the promises of God and the reality that Jesus is coming again. That's our hope. That's our promise. It's the eternal. It's the new Jerusalem that is coming. Restoration is coming. God is working now, and it's going to be glorious. But you need to hear this. The wealthy need to hold on to this hope as well. Why? They've got it in the wheelhouse. Why? Because wealth is also temporal. We need to remember that. Wealth is wonderful. Wealth can do a lot of wonderful things, but it's also temporal. In the Old Testament, Job says this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord our God. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says this, We brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of this world. And somebody, uh, a friend of mine who has the spiritual gift of cynicism, about this verse, he said, and, and given the type of world that we live in, we're lucky to break even. Proverbs 19.4 Wealth brings many new friends, but a poor man is deserted by his friend. Really? Really? Relationships are transactional? Really? Not my relationships. No, 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 no. I know, I know. All of us are the altruistic exception to this general rule, but we really aren't. There's something called social exchange. I don't know if any of you have ever studied it. Um, social exchange is the fact that you and I as human beings, fallen human beings, in our subconscious, we, we keep sort of a, a, a list of accounts with everybody that we're in relationship with. And it explains how you and I as human beings generally get into and out of relationships. If we perceive in our mind that we are getting more out of a relationship than we are putting into it, we'll stay in that relationship. But if we begin to perceive that we are uh, putting way more into the relationship than we're getting out of, that's, those are the relationships we begin to distance ourselves from. It's just a fact. You can read all the research on it. And we, we, God, we hate that. We, we, don't, we don't like to look at ourselves like that. It's transactional and that's just yucky. Yeah, I get it. One of the reasons we are so focused on the importance of gospel-centered relationships is because while there was, in a sense, a transaction that happened at the cross, you need to understand that transaction from Jesus' perspective. Who gave everything for that relationship? He did. And what did he get out of it? He, he's God. He got his mission and purpose, and his will was fulfilled. But if you think about it sort of economically, he lost on that deal. He gave everything for those of us who really don't deserve it, we're sinners. We've fallen short of the glory of God. And, and, and as a result, once that, that salvation, that love, that grace, that mercy has been imputed to us by Christ on the cross and his resurrection, we're then called to live in 
servanthood. Because that's what he did for us. He gave everything for us. Verses 6 and 7. This is in the middle of what Laura read. Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. All a poor man's brothers hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? Really, it would be... It would be difficult to make the absolute case that verse 6 by itself is there's something wrong with that. I mean, there's really nothing wrong with that, and it's certainly understandable. But when it's paired with verse 7, it does shed some light on this reality. Truth is, wealth tends to attract persons the way horses attract flies. It It just is. But we also need to be really careful when we examine this, because we do need to examine all sides of this. It's interesting... These verses are framed by the theme of lying and false witness. You heard Laura read it, 5 and 9. That's the framework for these verses, lying and false witness, both of which are uh, grievous sins according to God. And the debate is this. The debate is, are the rich ones lying and bearing false witness against the poor, thus taking advantage of and and oppressing the poor even further, or... Are the poor the ones who lie and bear false witness in order to gain just a few coins to be able to sustain their life? And the answer is yes. Both. The verses are directed at both because both are human beings and both are sinners. I am fascinated and even a bit disturbed and disoriented by the number of people inside the church who desperately want to have Uh, the Bible set up antipathy between the rich and poor. And they cite scripture to be able to do that. And the idea generally is that if you're wealthy, if you're rich, there's really something wrong with you. You're wicked in some way because there's no way you're wealthy or rich without having, you know, sinned in order to get there. And, And if you're poor, well, obviously you have tremendous godly character if you're poor. It's just not true. But we have that going on in the church, and it's a challenge, and it's a problem. It creates factions and divisions, which are also sin. And there are many instances where, because of the advantages and benefits that wealth brings, we do have teaching that's directed specifically at rich people in regard to their lack of godliness. And if you want a place to go to find those, it's in James. It's in the New Testament book of James. There's one place you can find that. But there's also clear teaching in Scripture that helps us to understand. The poor are not necessarily simply innocent bystanders in life. They're always being exploited. They participate in this as well. In this very uh, chapter of Proverbs right here, verse 15, slothfulness casts into a deep sleep and an idle person will suffer hunger. And verse 3, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. Listen to that verse. When a man's folly, woman's folly, brings their way to ruin, their heart rages against the Lord. So you have somebody who rejects the wisdom of God, rejects the counsel of their faith community, I'm going to do this on my own. I'm smarter than what Scripture says about how to handle money or how to handle my life. I'm smarter than the counsel of my wisest friend. I'm I'm going to do it my own way, and it leads to utter ruin. Who do they blame? Almost invariably, they shake their fist at God. Why? Why did you do this to me? 
And God's given his counsel. Further, Paul writes in the New Testament, if you're part of a family or community, in order to eat and to share in the benefits of the family and community, you have to work. The lazy don't get food, and they don't get foot rubs. It's there somewhere in the Greek, I'm sure. But. So here's the deal. Both rich and poor are sinners because both are humans. And God doesn't differentiate. The way of the wise regard, uh, uh, applies to all of us regardless of status. If you're rich, you need to hear the wisdom of God. If you're poor, you need to hear the wisdom of God. If you're rich, you need Jesus. If you're poor, you need Jesus. If you're middle class, not to leave you guys out, you need Jesus and you need wisdom. Everybody. God calls everybody to uh, repent and confess their sin and turn to Jesus. God calls everybody to his salvation and sanctification. God never calls anybody, never, to put on their spiritual Teflon and deflect his teaching to others. I know from experience that right now there are some of you who are thinking, oh, I wish so-and-so had come to church today. They really need to hear this. No, you need to hear this. I need to hear this. You might be sitting next to somebody right now, and you're, thank you, Jesus. They needed to hear this. They're saying the same thing to Jesus about you right now. We got to get rid of this spiritual Teflon that, that, that allows us to say, it's not me, it's everybody else. And we need to engage with this. And here's the truth there are righteous poor people. And this is tragic. People who've done nothing wrong, they've done everything right, and they have great godly character, and they just can't seem to get traction. They can't seem to get ahead. They're constantly chasing. And there are unrighteous rich. There are people who are wealthy, and they've done it by means of oppression and exploitation and sin and deceit. But we need to remember there's also unrighteous poor. There are people who have lived their entire life in wickedness. And there are also righteous rich, people who have done everything right, and for whatever reason, God has blessed them. And part of their character of being the righteous rich is that they understand that with, with great blessing comes great opportunity and responsibility, and they are exercising those opportunities and responsibilities in their blessings. And that leads to the last verse, which is the overarching truth of the matter and what God calls us to, even when we get scammed. Verse 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. With great blessing comes an even greater responsibility. Those of us who are blessed by our vocations have a responsibility to give and to serve and not just be consumers. In God's economy, that's what we're called to, servanthood and not just consumerism. And here's one example, and I'm sorry if this sounds self-serving. It's just an example that I know well. When I was a young Christian 30 years ago, I had a mentor at the church I was attending at the time, kind of got involved in my life. And before I really even understood this from a scriptural standpoint, I understood it in his life, and I saw him live this out. Um, he didn't loan a lot of money to people. He wasn't a guy that went around loaning money to people. But when he did loan money to people, he never expected to be repaid. If he got repaid, that was fine. But he would never loan money expecting to get it back. Now, that, he didn't announce that. But I thought it was a beautiful picture of our attitude towards this stuff. And, and so Jackie and I, for 30 years, 
We don't loan money to a lot of people. We don't. But when we do, we understand that we're loaning it with absolutely no strings attached. There's no contract. There's no paperwork. There's no formal payback system. We loan it, and if it comes back, it comes back. If it doesn't, we don't miss it. Now, I understand some of you like, want to talk to me after service. I, like I said, we don't loan a lot of money, okay? We don't. But when we do, we do it that way. That's what God has led us to do through the example of somebody that I really respected and trusted. And it happens to line up, I believe, with scriptural uh, teachings as well. Now, let me also give this one caveat because we have a number of people in our congregation who work for banks and are loan officers. This is not counsel on how you should operate your business, okay? It just isn't. You need to have those policies in place. I'm talking about personally and how we handle our personal affairs. We're called to generosity. We're called to hold things loosely. So, so then the question is, what might our generosity be born of? Second place today, I get to say, I believe this is low-hanging fruit. I think this is just so obvious. Why should we be generous? Because of God's adoption of us. By and through Jesus Christ, God has adopted us. While we were yet impoverished spiritual orphans, Jesus died on the cross so that we could have life, redemption, sanctification, and live in victory. That's where our generosity is born. It's imputed to us by Christ. Those of you who are note takers, I, I just would implore you right now, just set down your pen and just listen and let these verses of adoption wash over you and let the Spirit just apply them to your hearts. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which, by the way, 2018, we're going to go through the book of Ephesians, verse by verse. This is about our adopted position in Christ. Paul writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Romans 8.15, also our adopted position in Christ. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. And because of our adopted position in Christ, James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Be servants, not consumers. Psalm 68.5, Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 1.16 through 17, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove all the evil deeds, uh, the, the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. One way 
I think all of us, in some way, shape, or form, can act as servants and not just consumers is through foster care and adoption and by supporting those who do. Not all of us can adopt, not all of us can do foster care, but we can at least support those who do. And, and look at the verses about this. Just as we have been fostered and discipled and adopted by the Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ, we can also do the same. Four years ago, in the midst of a tremendous crisis in our state, Redemption Church began something called Redemption Foster Care and Adoption and was instrumental in helping to start something called AZ-127, which is one of the premier adoption agencies in Arizona working with churches all over the state of Arizona. With more than 17,000 children in the system four years ago, dozens, and by some people's count, hundreds of children were actually sleeping in the offices of social workers at night because there weren't enough foster parents to be able to handle the crisis in Arizona. That's no longer the case. The church was mobilized. I mean the church in Arizona, not just redemption. The church in Arizona, the body of Christ in Arizona, was mobilized and has made a huge difference in the last three years. And the work is certainly not over, but a lot of the pressure has been relieved. Fostering and adoption by churched Christians is up more than 20% in the last three years. And according to Arizona state data, this is not data from Christians. This is according to the state of Arizona. Christians are the most likely people to foster and adopt. I think it's because we know we've been graciously fostered and adopted by Jesus. That's that imputed reality that we're living out now. At Redemption Church, now remember, this is just Redemption Church. It's not everybody in the state of Arizona. It's just Redemption Church. We've had 527 people go through foster care uh, orientation in the last three years. And 169 of them have taken the next step to go through basic training for foster care. And we have fostered at Redemption Church more than 400 children over the last three years. Now, this is not to romanticize this ministry in any way, shape, or form. I don't, do not ever go down the road of romanticizing this ministry because there's really nothing romantic about it. it. It is the hardest thing that people ever do is foster. The trauma that these children have been through is way more than you and I, most of us, can handle as an observer in relationship with those children, let alone actually going through it, it's really hard. This is not an easy ministry. And those who do it need the rest of us to walk with them. You don't have to foster or adopt to be able to help. If you are interested in fostering, we have periodic information and orientation events that you can attend. One's coming up. They're comprehensive and they're engaging. You don't, you don't go somewhere for 15 minutes, hear about what it's like to foster a kid and then have some cookies. It's pretty comprehensive. But for, for those who are fostering, they, they need our help. They need our help. If, if you can't, and by the way, here, understand, this is not a Protestant guilt trip because we're good at that sometimes, but this is not a Protestant guilt trip. If you're not able to foster, we understand, but you can help in other tangible ways, resources, respite, 
recreation. I know there are people in this congregation who on a regular basis go to foster parents on a weekend and say, I'll take the kids for three hours. We'll go on an outing. The kids love it because they get an event. They get an outing. The foster parents love it because they get rest and respite. They need our prayer. They need our encouragement. If you're interested in, in learning more, here's where you can go. One of the persons, well, two of the persons who are standing up here, deacons, Mark and Keeley Hansen, they're our foster care and adoption liaisons here at Redemption Arcadia. You can contact them through sparkwithmark at gmail.com. If you want to contact Kirsten Traina, she's the executive director of Redemption Foster Care and Adoption. She uh, offices out of the Gilbert congregation. You can contact her. Our next Redemption Foster Care and Adoption orientation is uh, November 28th. It's just 10 days from now. Nine days, sorry. I went to North High School. Um, at Tempe from 6.30 to 8 o'clock at our Tempe congregation. The theme of adoption is clear in God's word. Even Jesus was adopted by Joseph in a sense. And ultimately through the cross and resurrection, we are adopted to be God's children. Care and love for the poor in a world of plenty. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word and its truth. Thank you that it does confront us and disciple us and discipline us. Thank you that it also points us to the source of our, our power and our encouragement and our hope, which is your son and the filling of the Holy Spirit. God, let us press into that and claim that promise and hope. We ask it in Jesus' name, and we come to you by your Holy Spirit. Amen.